Hello and welcome to season two of the history of the Germans, the Salians. I'm really excited because this is the big one. That's the bit of German medieval history you really need to know about. We start with episode 22, Conrad II. Who would have thought? It has been a while since we stopped the narrative and so I thought we should best start with a bit of context. We are in the year 1024 and this season will cover almost exactly a century until the end of the Salian dynasty in 1125. This is a period of quite fundamental change, not just in the empire, but in Europe more generally. As the economic boom of the Middle Ages gains pace, people begin to think beyond their next meal and a roof over their head for the night. They call for an end to the constant violence, creating the peace movement that emerges in France and encompasses the whole of Europe. That movement is closely intertwined with the Crusades, which begin in 1095, not least as a means to channel military restlessness away from the domestic peasants to foreign lands. Now once the physiological needs for food, water, warmth and rest are covered, and some degree of safety is provided, more and more people move up Maslow's pyramid, looking for belonging, love, status, knowledge, aesthetic beauty, self-actualization, and ultimately transcendence. In the 11th century, the afterlife becomes the dominating concern of everyone, from the mightiest aristocrat to the lowliest peasant. Therefore, priests and clergy are held to ever higher standards to ensure the effectiveness of prayer providing access to heaven. And then there's the idea that even after your death, prayers by those who are still alive could improve your status in purgatory. And that drives generous donations to monasteries in exchange for eternal prayers. It also kickstarts a frantic construction activity during which the great Romanesque cathedrals of Speyer, Mainz and Worms rise up. And at the same time, increased wealth allows the secular powers to expand their military capabilities. Stone castles sitting atop unassailable hills began to replace the manor houses and modern bailey castles. The size of armies gradually increases, and the armoured riders of the Carolingian and Ottonian periods are gradually turned into actual knights. And finally, new political entities emerge that either did not exist before or had been insignificant players on the international stage. The most famous of such new entities to emerge is Norman England. The Normans invade in 1066, less than halfway through the Salian period, and they establish a powerful entity that begins to protect power beyond its own borders. England had hitherto been insignificant on any international level, if you exclude the brief rule of King Canute. But that is not the only state the Normans created. In the same period, a small group of mercenaries from Normandy managed to play the three powers in southern Italy, the Byzantines, the Muslims and the Lombard dukes, against each other until they themselves, the Normans, had conquered all the territories of their former employers and forced the Pope to accept them as kings of Sicily. This is also during this time that the first and the only really successful crusade creates the Kingdom of Jerusalem and other crusader states. But the crusade movement was not limited to the Near East. The kingdoms of Portugal, Leon, Castile, Aragon and Navarre conquered more than half of the Iberian Peninsula during this period from the various Muslim kingdoms. Now we have already seen the new kingdoms of Poland and Hungary appearing on the map during the 10th century. As we will see in this narrative, 
these polities will gain coherence and identity distinct from the empire. And another power comes into contact with Western Europe, Russia, or more precisely the rulers of Kiev, who forge political and marriage alliances with their neighbours. Whilst new coherent political entities emerge around them, the French kings reach the low point of their power under Henry I, 1031-1061, when they barely control more than Paris and its surroundings. This weakness meant that not only powerful vassals did as they liked, but also smaller noblemen could become rubber barons who plundered and murdered anyone crossing their land. The kingdom was literally sinking into chaos. His successors, Louis VI and Louis VII, managed to drag the monarchy out of the hole and patiently expanded and pacified their territory, so that by the end of the salient period, they were well on their way to face up against the Angevin Empire in the two sets of Hundred Years' War with England. The other key shift is in the social order. The rise in economic activity gives birth to a merchant class based in the cities. That trend is most pronounced in Italy, but it also happens elsewhere in Europe. In Italy, the city populations clash with the bishops, who often rule the city, and with the magnates who control the countryside. The rise of urban freedoms in Italy provides inspiration for cities north of the Alps to chuck out their bishops and to seek political self-determination. If you take the 10,000 feet view of what happens here, the striking thing is the absence of a central power. A central power that could organize the Crusades, conquer Spain, provide law and order in France and clean up southern Italy. In 1024, when the Emperor Henry II, the last of the Ottonians, passed away, such a central power existed. The German kingdom, by the standards of the times, was a well-ordered political entity, with a monarch who could command considerable resources, mainly through his control of church lands and their military capabilities. The question why Henry II's successors did not consolidate Europe under their rule, and why Europe today has this great diversity of languages, culture and history within a territory of half the size of Canada, is the story of these 100 years between 1024 and 1125, the hundred years of salian rule. So, without further ado, let's get you back to the summer of 1024 in Germany. For the second time in a bit more than 20 years, a childless emperor had died. First Otto III and now Henry II succumbed to his long-standing health issues on July 13, 1024. He did not leave a succession plan. He was a deeply pious man who saw his job in turning the empire into a house of God, and in that logic, if the house would please the Lord, the Lord would select a worthy successor. And if he did not, well then, good riddance to the whole thing. That view may have been quite saintly, but must have scared the hell out of everyone else. Previous transitions of power, even where the new ruler had been designated by his predecessors, had caused huge uncertainty. The civil wars of 936, 955, 982 and 1002 cannot have been forgotten. The chronicler Vipo described the situation as follows. After the emperor's passing, the state, orphaned by the loss of its father, began to sway. All well-meaning men were gripped by fear. The wicked men were hoping for the destruction of the realm. And further, 
Since the emperor had died without offspring, the magnates strive to become the first, or, if that fails, the closest to the first, using force rather than wisdom. The situation was kept in check through a combination of two factors. Firstly, a date for an election was set quickly for early September, just six weeks after Henry II's death, which is about as fast as one can organize such things in the 11th century. And secondly, control of the empire, in the meantime, lay in the hands of Empress Kunigunde, who was well respected and had been closely involved in all imperial affairs during her husband's reign. She, together with her extended and powerful family, managed the transition as smoothly as these things can be done. On September 4th, 1024, representatives of the Swabians, the Bavarians, the Franconians and Lothringians meet in Camber, a now lost location on the right bank of the Rhine, to elect a new king. The Saxons stayed behind, though they did hold a meeting amongst themselves to discuss the succession. In hindsight, the election of 1024 is seen as a crucial moment, when the empire becomes an elective monarchy, as opposed to the hereditary French or British monarchies. Now, Before we jump to these conclusions, remember that at this point in history, most elevations to kingship retained an elective element. That came from the ancient German tradition of raising the most capable warrior to lead the tribe as its king. That tradition had long been watered down, starting by limiting the set of potential electors from all-sort-carrying men to the aristocratic elite. In France and England, the kings kept designating their sons to become kings and then negotiate terms with the electors until such time that elections had become foregone conclusions and were eventually replaced by pure declaration of homage. In Germany, on the other hand, we have the fact that Otto III, Henry II and then later Henry V died childless, requiring a decision about succession by the magnates. And that meant the election process remained relevant and over time became the key requirement for the elevation of the monarch. Whether the electoral principle helped or hurt the development of the empire is another one of these open questions you may want to keep in the back of your mind as we go through the medieval emperors. Elections were not about exercising democratic rights and determining the will of the people. Medieval imperial elections were seen as a means to unveil God's decision who should rule. Hence the elite that made the designation had already been quite small since Carolingian times. In 887, it was expected that each of the main regions should be represented by their dukes or senior lords. But that group seems to have widened again in the 10th and 11th century and now included counts and abbots, who were only excluded after 1198. Wipo even acknowledges a right of Italian magnates to participate, as they had in the election of Otto III in 983, but states they could not make it in time for the 1024 election. Electric colleges shrank rapidly in the 13th century and elections became more formalized over time until the Golden Bull of 1348 codified the existing practice. It limited the electors to seven, the Archbishops of Mainz, Trier and Cologne, the King of Bohemia, the Duke of Saxony, the Count Palatinate and the Markgrafe of Brandenburg, which, with minor additions, remained the case until 1806. But in 1024, the election was a major gathering with most bishops, excluding the Saxons present, as well as the major dukes and counts, and again excluding the Saxons. The election itself was not a voting process, as we would have recognized it, 
but a negotiation that ended with a unanimous acclamation. There were no rights to veto, and dissenters had to leave the gathering so as not to spoil the appearance of unanimity. Weeper describes how the magnates camped along both shores of the Rhine organized by stems and negotiated through secret gatherings and envoys going from tent to tent. But now, how do you choose an emperor? What are the criteria? One concept could be descendants from the previous emperor. In 1024, there was literally nobody who descended from a previous king in the male line, which is quite an achievement given women were expected to produce children to the point of total exhaustion or death. Part of the problem was that the Ottonians consistently turned its offspring into bishops and abbesses, clearly disregarding the urge to prolong the dynasty. The second issue was that the younger brothers had a habit of rebelling, which is why the childless Henry II forced his only brother to become a bishop. It's not even clear whether blood alone would have been enough. The concept of primogeniture was comparatively new, and only been introduced by King Henry the Fowler in 935, and not yet widely recognised. Henry II had claimed the throne based on being the closest descendant in the male line of King Henry I, but that was by no means acknowledged by everyone. He ultimately had to capture the throne in a coup, bypassing election. In terms of blood relations, the closest were the two sons of the Count Palatinate Etzo, who had married Otto III's sister. Next up from there were maybe the sons of the King of Hungary, whose mother was a sister of Henry II. And then you had the descendants of Conrad the Red, who was married to one of Otto the Great's sisters. But given that the ultimate winner of this contest barely mentioned the relations to the Ottonians, we can be confident that this was not the most relevant criteria. But that does not mean that any Tom, Dick or Harry could become emperor. Lineage is important. A future king must have pedigree, and ideally a pedigree that goes back to Charlemagne or even the Merovingians, who, as we all know, are descendants of sea monsters. That narrows it down to maybe about 500 to 1,000 individuals in total. Apart from being a senior noble, what other criteria were there? Now, there are some general requirements for kingship, like being a religious and moral person willing to defend the church, being willing to uphold the law, and in particular the privileges of the elite, being merciful, and being successful in battle. These criteria are sufficiently vague that there must have been a long list of potential candidates. Over several days of negotiations, that list was whittled down to just two, both called Conrad, and both from the same clan. This clan did not really have a name at the time. After 1200, chroniclers called them the Salians, and that name stuck. The Salian family are descendants of Conrad the Red. You may remember him. He was the close associate of Otto the Great, who became Duke of Lothringia, then fell out with the Emperor, joined Ludolf's rebellion, and after bending the knee, fought valiantly at the Battle of the Lechfeld, where he died. Conrad the Red's direct ancestors are a bit of a muddle. By the family tradition insists that a long line of high nobility is going all the way back to the great Clovis, King of the Franks. We met him in part two of the prologue. Amongst other things, Clovis issued the so-called Salic or Salian Law, named after the most renowned of Frankish tribes, of which he may have been the leader. 
We know the Sadic law today is shorthand for excluding women from the inheritance of titles or monarchic roles. It was a lot more than that, but let's not deviate too much. Anyway, Clovis was believed to have been a Salian Frank, so that the later chroniclers began calling the clan of Conrad the Red the Salians. We go the other direction, the descendants of Conrad the Red created a coherent power base around the city of Worms, about 70 kilometers south of Frankfurt. That was probably one of the first territorial entities where a magnate consolidated the lands and rights around a specific area into one coherent entity. Up until now, aristocrats would often have lands and rights spread across the kingdom. They would hold the office of duke or count in one place once their private lands are in a different part of the country. This salient territory was different, and thanks to being geographically connected and its rights and privilege going fairly deep, a lot more powerful than its optical size indicates. The salients also worked hard to keep the territory together, and, other than their peers, did not divide it between their male descendants. There was only ever one descendant who would inherit all. For completeness sake, I have to say that the Salians also held the office of the Duke of Carinthia from time to time, though they put very little effort into this post a long way away from their personal possessions. The two members of the Salians that made the shortlist, Conrad the Younger and Conrad the Elder, were cousins. Conrad the Elder's father had died when he was quite young, so that the control of the Salian territory ended up with the father of Conrad the Younger and ultimately with Conrad the Younger himself. So Conrad the Younger was the rich and the powerful one. Conrad the Elder may have been effectively disinherited, but he wasn't completely without means. He rescued his finances by marrying the formidable and allegedly unbelievably beautiful Gisela, widow of Ernst, Duke of Swabia. Gisela had the guardianship for her son Ernst II, it meant that she controlled the duchy. Conrad was hence well connected, so not without resources, but by far the less powerful of the two Conrads. In a smart move, the older Conrad convinced the younger Conrad to agree that with either of them would be elected, the other would not contest the election. That was not the cleverest thing to do for the younger Conrad, who had the resources to mount a serious threat in case of an election of the elder Conrad, once the elder Conrad could not realistically hope to unseat a younger Conrad. When the two Conrads sealed their agreement with a kiss in front of the magnates, the election was effectively settled, and the majority went for the elder Conrad as King Conrad II. It seems the reason the elder Conrad was elected was down to the fact that he was the diametrical opposite of Henry II. Henry II may have been a very effective monarch who consolidated and solidified central power, but from the perspective of the aristocratic elite, he was a tyrant. So being the opposite was a good thing, as far as electors were concerned. If you remember, Henry II had been an exceptionally well-read individual who brought up to become a cleric. His interest in theology had led him to pursue a rigorous definition of incest that invalidated almost all marriages amongst the upper nobility and caused untold misery for many couples. Conrad II had been trained to become a secular lord, so never learned to read or write and was unlikely to disappear down a doctrinal rabbit hole. Henry II was a sickly individual, 
suffering from various ailments, including rather painful gallstones. Conrad II, on the other hand, must have been a giant, one of the tallest and physically most powerful men of his time. He was nearly two meters tall, had broad shoulders, and was known to have ridden a hundred miles without stopping. To put that into perspective, at a time when the average height was about 169, Charlemagne was described as of lofty stature, and he was a lot shorter at between 180 and 190. And the next thing was that Henry II could draw on the resources of the well-organized and rich Duchy of Bavaria when he ascended the throne, making him less dependent on his lords for vassalage. Conrad II had no material resources in his own right. His access to the resources of Swabia was indirect and temporary until Ernest II reached maturity. The next item on the list is that Henry II had no children, whilst Conrad II already had a son at the time of the election. And finally, Conrad's opposition to Henry II and his policies was well known. He had fought in several rebellions against him and only reconciled with the emperor a few years before 1024. Now this is my interpretation based on the fundamental differences in character, resources and political position between Henry II and Conrad II. Many historians have very different views stressing continuity between Henry II and Conrad II. That view is based on the fact that Conrad II received strong support from ecclesiastical lords, first and foremost from Archbishop Aribo of Mainz, who had been a close associate of Henry II and heavily involved in the policy to persecute secular lords for marrying close relatives. Now, we will probably never know exactly what motivated the electors in this, the first free election of a German king. There were likely lots of side deals and promises, some of which will not be kept, as many protagonists will find out shortly. Once it was clear the pendulum would swing in favour of the elder Conrad, the Archbishop of Cologne and the Duke of Lothringia left the meeting at Camber. As I said before, this is not an election that comes out with a 60-40 result. The result had to be 100%, as it reflected God's will. Dissenters had to leave the assembly, and this is what they did. They had no hope in electing anyone else, since the alternative candidate, Conrad the Younger, had voted for his cousin. All they wanted was more privileges from the emperor in exchange for their vote. And that is what they got, thanks to some very odd behaviour of the Archbishop of Mainz. Following the election, the assembly proceeded to crown the new emperor in Mainz. As you all know, you need two things for a viable coronation, the imperial insignia and the correct archbishop. The former was procured quickly as the previous Empress Kunigunde recognized the election and handed the insignia, including the Holy Lance, over to the Archbishop of Mainz. Aribo of Mainz was also the correct archbishop, as the Pope had awarded the right to crown the German king to the Church of Mainz. So on September 8th, four days after election, Conrad is crowned and anointed in the Cathedral of Mainz. Who is not crowned and not anointed at the same time is the new empress, the formidable Gisela. There are endless speculation why Aribo refused to crown Gisela. The leading theory is that Aribo had refused it on the grounds that Conrad and Gisela were both descendants of Henry I and hence too closely related. That is a possible reason, since Aribo was a fervent adherent of the theory 
that the Bible prohibits marriages between relatives in the seventh degree. However, the Archbishop would have known about that issue before the election. Therefore, supporters of this theory conclude that Conrad must have promised to annul the marriage immediately after the coronation, which he clearly did not do. The other theories assume some issue with one of Gisela's previous marriages and her mother's marriage, but they also run into the same problem. All these things are well known. There are not that many people around who are eligible to become kings, and they all know each other. Bottom line is that Aribo refused. But Conrad would not let go, and he could not accept the refusal to crown his wife. And the Archbishop of Cologne had a lot less scruples about the imperial marriage and offered to crown Gisela. Conrad jumped at the opportunity and, in exchange, supported the bishop's request to the Pope to become entrusted with royal coronations from here on out. As Aribo had found himself on the wrong side with the Pope for a couple of other reasons, the privilege was duly transferred to Cologne, so that from now on the correct Archbishop is the Archbishop of Cologne. That said, some kings will still be crowned by Mainz, claiming the elder privilege, while sometimes anti-kings will receive the blessing from Cologne and still end up not counting as correctly crowned. It's complicated. He may be elected and he may be crowned, but he is not yet truly king. He may have bought the Archbishop of Cologne with the right to crown kings in the future, but the two Lothringian dukes, Gozolo and Frederick, remained in opposition. Equally, the Saxons have not yet formally given homage. Conrad has to undertake a royal progress across his lands to secure support from all his nobles. It is a similar progress we have seen Henry II undertake after his coronation in 1002 and will become a tradition for future kings and emperors. The initial route is through Lothringia, where he did not encounter actual resistance, but still did not receive homage from the two dukes. They will come around, but not yet. The next important staging post is the Abbey of Vreden, where Conrad is greeted by the abbesses Sophie of Gandersheim and Adelheid of Quedlinburg. These are two sisters of Otto II. These are the standard bearers of the Ottonians and thereby the Saxon line. Their involvement in the election of Henry II had already been crucial. And again, by receiving and recognizing Conrad as king, the Saxon nobles are compelled to accept him. And the Saxons did offer him homage a few weeks later at a great gathering in Minden at Christmas 1024, and like Henry II, Conrad had to confirm the Saxons' special rights and freedoms they trace back to the time of Otto the Great. These Saxon exceptionals will become the bane of the Salian regime and contribute to its downfall 50 years later. Conrad moves on to Regensburg, where he confirms his control of Bavaria, a duchy that had supported his election anyway. That does not stop him from moving several monasteries from ducal into direct royal control, in other words, nicking the duke's assets. In spring 1025, we found him deep in the southwest in Constance, where he received the homage of his Italian subjects, including the Archbishop of Milan. During the previous year, several players, namely the Duke of Aquitaine and the King of France, have checked out the situation in Italy, considering putting themselves or one of their sons on the throne of Italy. The discussion with the Italian magnates had convinced these pretenders, however, not to push for it, 
well, at least not for now. Conrad may have felt reassured that the Italians did not go into rebellion and elected someone else as their king, but that is not the same as being in control of the Italian kingdom. One thing might illustrate that quite clearly. The citizens of Pavia had used the period between Henry II's death and Conrad's election to burn down the royal palace in the centre of the city. This palace went back to the time of Theodoric the Great in the 5th century, if not further. It had been the centre of royal administration in Italy for centuries. The reason they burnt it down is not hard to fathom. You may remember that Henry II's troops had burned the city and massacred its population in 1004 after the king had been attacked inside that very same palace by an angry mob. Now once Henry II was dead, it was payback time. So when the citizens of Pavia appeared at Constance to justify themselves, they argued that they only burned the palace after Henry II was dead and hence they did not insult the king or damage any living man's property. Now Conrad's response to this is quite remarkable. Quote, I know that you have not destroyed the palace of the king, as you had no king at the time. But you cannot deny that you have destroyed a royal palace. Even when the king passes, the kingdom remains, like the ship remains when the helmsman perishes. It was a public building, not a private home. It belonged to someone else, not yourselves. You have hence trespassed on another's land and are hence subject to royal justice. This is a huge shift in the perception of kingship. Under the Carolingian rulers, the kingdom was a private property, in the same way as a farm or a horse was a private property. The Salian inheritance rules that require partition amongst the male heirs applied to the farms, the horses and the kingdoms. Henry the Fowler already altered the legal status of the kingdom by making Otto the Great his sole heir. But the idea that the state could be distinct from the person of the ruler had not permeated far by the end of the 10th century. For instance, in 983, Otto II had his cousin Henry the Quarrelsome incarcerated as a traitor. However, when Otto II died, Henry the Quarrelsome was immediately released, as he was only a traitor against the person of the king, not against the state, in inverted commas. What Conrad says here is that he sees the kingdom as something that is bigger and separate from the person of the ruler, that it has its own rights that are unaffected by the fate of the person wearing the crown. This more modern notion of the state will be one of the foundations of the Salians' understanding of their role as kings and emperors. They may not always be consistent in it, but the prevailing logic is that they are acting on behalf of the state, the res publica, as it is now sometimes called, not on behalf of themselves. Apart from these exciting constitutional shifts, the discussions in Constance yielded a more practical outcome. Italy was restless and imperial power was not recognized. Therefore, Conrad needed to go down to Italy and get crowned emperor in Rome. Other than his predecessor, Conrad went straight down to Italy in spring 1026, basically as soon as the last bit of Lothringian and Swabian opposition had caved, mainly out of exhaustion and lack of support. In Italy, he could rely on support from Aribert, the Archbishop of Milan, a small number of friendly bishops and the Margrave Boniface of Canossa. Pretty much everyone else was opposed to imperial power. 
The aristocratic opposition, led by the Markgraf of Tuscany, could not build up the courage to elect their own king. and They didn't even have the guts to call in a foreign leader as a new king, but they remained in a passive-aggressive opposition to Conrad, sitting on their castles, sulking. Urban populations were more outspoken, as we have seen with Pavia. Conrad besieged the city, but Pavia held out until 1027, thereby slowing the royal progress down considerably. There were even more urban riots during Conrad's progress, most violently in Ravenna, another city hosting a major royal palace. At this point, Conrad did nothing much about the situation instead of awarding many rights and privileges to his allies, namely the Archbishop of Milan. The most significant move was transferring Tuscany to his ally Boniface of Canossa, who now controlled a straight band of land across central Italy, north of Rome, ranging from Ferrara through Mantua, Modena, Reggio, Brescia, all the way across through Tuscany. All this done in March 1027, he finally enters Rome, and over Easter, Pope John Nineteenth crowns him and his wife Gisela as emperor and empress. As always in these tumultuous days, there are violent riots in Rome that cost many lives. People fight over which archbishop leads the emperor to the church gate, and even as trivial matters as a cowhide. Leaving these niggles aside, it still was one of the most glamorous coronations of the Middle Ages. Two crowned kings were in attendance, Rudolf III of Burgundy and, drumroll, King Canute. Yes, this King Canute. You may have come across him in English history as the king who tried to command the waves. This story is about as misleading as King Alfred and the burned bread. Canute is a truly astounding character who created a Nordic empire comprising Denmark, Norway, parts of Sweden, the southern side of the Baltic coast and obviously England. He had come down to Rome, not for the coronation per se, but on pilgrimage. He was happy to mix business and devotion to meet and honour the brand new emperor. Apparently the two got on well and forged an alliance that included a marriage between Conrad's son Henry and Canute's daughter. This was quite a journey. Within a mere three years, a mid-ranking aristocrat with nothing more than an impressive physique and an impeccable lineage has managed to rise first to king and now to emperor. Not quite as unlikely as an Austrian bodybuilder becoming governor of California, but close. And it is not just titles he collected, he also gained a modicum of control over his empire that he had taken over from his very distant cousin. But his trials and tribulations are not over, though. Whilst he is trying to get to grips with the bewildering situation in Italy, his stepson, Ernst II of Swabia, had returned to his homeland and began a more serious rebellion. A rebellion that would turn into a great legend of friendship, a mother's broken heart and adventures in foreign lands. And at the same time, the Polish ruler Boleslav the Brave had crowned himself king disregarding Conrad's prerogatives. And when Boleslav died, his son Mieszko II did the same, bringing down the wrath of the emperor. And most importantly, there is the question of Burgundy. Burgundy had been associated with the empire and its kings had often given homage to the emperors. 
but it was never formally integrated into the empire. Its king, Rudolf III, was now very old and had no male heirs, opening up the route for an almighty inheritance dispute. All this and more in next week's episode. I hope to see you then, and if you liked the episode, please tell your friends about it and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Note that nothing increases visibility of the show more than a growth in followers.